One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Chargers at Patriots. Kickoff Sunday, December 3rd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 40 and a half. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. The Patriots rank 31st in the NFL in scoring and have scored less than 20 points in 9 of their 11 games this season, while scoring 7 or fewer points on 4 occasions. Bailey Zappi will start at quarterback for the Patriots, who appear to have moved on from Mac Jones. The Chargers' defense has been disappointing as a whole this season, but has feasted on the weaker offensive teams they have played. The Los Angeles offense appears to match up well with a Patriots pass defense that has been struggling. Questions surround star running back Austin Eckler's health, as he has been fully active recently but has not looked like his normal self. How New England will try to win The Patriots season has gotten away from them quickly, as they have a 2-9 record and are coming off a rough loss to the struggling Giants. The Patriots have scored 13 total points in their last two games and benched Mac Jones mid-game in both instances. This week, they are apparently moving on from Jones altogether, as they have announced Bailey Zappi as their starting quarterback for Sunday and have been giving athletic rookie Malik Cunningham the backup reps at practice. Those signs would seem to indicate Jones will be the third-string emergency quarterback on Sunday, if he's active at all. For all intents and purposes, Zappi isn't much different from Jones. A relatively low-ceiling option at the position, Zappi is essentially a solid game manager with low arm strength and will rely on the scheme and his running game to carry him. The Patriots will need a strong showing on the ground and to keep the game close if they want to give Zappi a chance to succeed. New England ranks 27th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, and while they have played at an elevated tempo for much of this season, it would make sense if they slowed things down a bit now that Zappi is under center. Considering the extreme struggles of the Patriots' offense, it wouldn't be shocking to see them involve Cunningham in some gadget plays and or high-leverage situations. Their personnel provides very little in terms of explosive plays or even the threat of that, and the scheme hasn't been able to do the trick either. For those reasons, involving Cunningham and doing something the Chargers won't have any film or preparation for would seem to be an easy way to get some cheap yards. In the passing game, the Patriots are hurting and are struggling to keep people on the field. Rookie DeMario Pop Douglas has not practiced yet this week due to a concussion and is likely to miss this game. He has been their best wide receiver option since losing Kendrick Bourne to a torn ACL and will definitely be missed. While the Patriots will likely be extremely run-heavy against the Chargers' 26th-ranked run defense, their passing game will almost certainly be focused on the short and intermediate areas of the field with the running backs and tight ends heavily involved. In any regard, we should expect a methodical and conservative approach as the Patriots look to muddy the game up and bring the Chargers down to their level. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win the Chargers are theoretically still alive for the playoffs despite their 4-7 record. While it would be completely shocking if this franchise were able to rattle off six straight wins, their next five games are against the Patriots, Raiders, Broncos twice, and the Bills before a Week 18 game against the Chiefs. Those first five matchups are all theoretically winnable, and it's possible that the Chiefs will be resting guys in the final week of the year, giving this downtrodden team a sliver of hope if they can pull things together. While that is the optimistic view, the reality is that they have lost five games by four points or less and haven't been able to put away any of the better teams on their schedule. What they have been able to do is take care of the truly bad teams they have faced. Of their four wins, one came against the Raiders while Josh McDaniel was still in town, and two came against Tyson Badgett's Bears and Zach Wilson's Jets. 
This week is essentially a must-win game for Los Angeles, and if they lose, I would not be surprised to see embattled head coach Brandon Staley fired on Monday morning. The Chargers' offense had some very bright moments this season, but has been largely disappointing, particularly in their receiving core. Entering the season, it seemed that they had a nice stable of four good-to-great wide receivers, but they lost Mike Williams to a torn ACL, and Josh Palmer has been out several weeks with a knee injury of his own. Meanwhile, rookie first-round pick Quentin Johnston has been one of the worst receivers in the league from an efficiency standpoint and has taken zero advantage of his opportunities. Luckily for the Chargers, Keenan Allen is putting together a career year and has been downright dominant at times. The Patriots play man coverage at the fifth-highest rate in the league, and Allen ranks eighth in the NFL in PFF receiving grade when facing man coverage. The Patriots also rank 27th in PFF coverage grade. The New England defense ranks 4th in the NFL in blitz rate, but falls in the middle of the league in QB pressure rate and 30th in PFF pass rush grade. Said another way, they blitz to try to get pressure and still struggle to do so while leaving their leaky secondary exposed. Bold strategy, Cotton. The Chargers rank 8th in the league in pass rate over expectation and lead the NFL in pace of play, snapping the ball at an average of 26.7 seconds per play. This week, against a Patriots defense that has been stout against the run and has all of these deficiencies in their pass defense, it would seem likely that the Chargers lean into what they do best rather than pounding their heads against the wall. Adding to that likelihood is the fact that star running back Austin Eckler has looked a step slow the last couple of weeks and has not been giving them much on the ground. While the Chargers' receiving core has been struggling this year outside of Allen, they will need to rely on the strong arm of quarterback Justin Herbert if they want to consistently move the ball. It will be interesting to see how aggressive they are with their passing game concepts, considering the struggles New England has had on offense and their lack of consistent downfield threats. It would seem likely that their tight ends and running backs will be heavily involved in the passing game as they play quickly and throw often but try to protect the ball and not give the Patriots free points. Likeliest Game Flow These two teams lead the NFL in raw pace of play, but it is unclear at this point if the Patriots will continue to play quickly with Zappi under center. Slowing the game down and muddying it up seems like their best chance of victory, and frankly, if they can just keep this game close into the fourth quarter, there's a realistic chance the Chargers just find a way to give it to them. All of that being said, things have gotten as ugly as we've seen them in New England since Bill Belichick's first season, and it won't be shocking if the Chargers and their superior personnel are able to dominate this game as they were able to against the Jets and Bears. This is a very similar situation to those two games, with a below starting caliber quarterback on the other side and a team that is struggling to build any sort of identity. New England is unlikely to consistently sustain drives, and the elevated pass rate and pace of the Chargers should give them a lot of opportunities to string together drives and put points on the board. It will likely be a slow burn, as the Chargers are not currently built in a way that produces many explosive plays, and the Patriots will likely be conservative on offense so they can force Los Angeles to march the length of the field. The Chargers' offense ranks fourth in the NFL in red zone TD percentage for the season, but has been struggling lately and scored on only half of their red zone trips over the last three weeks. This week, they face a Patriots defense that, for all its struggles, has been top 10 in the NFL in red zone TD percentage this season and has limited opponent scoring. The most likely scenario is a lot of Chargers' field goals slowly building a lead and pulling away, with Patriots' turnovers being the main path for speeding up that process. Lions at Saints. Kickoff Sunday, December 3rd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 47. Game Overview by Hilo. Saints running back Kendra Miller has an ankle injury, and wide receiver Rashid Shahid has a thigh injury. Both have yet to practice as of Thursday, 
while wide receiver Chris Olave has a concussion and remains in the concussion protocol, placing his status in question as well. Lions center Frank Ragnow has back and toe injuries and went from full practice on Wednesday to DNP on Thursday. Not exactly the best setup for him to be active on Sunday. It is very difficult to get a solid read on this game environment with so many moving pieces on the Saints. How Detroit will try to win. The Lions have proven that they've turned a corner as an organization this season, capable of winning in many different ways. We've seen games of extreme pass rate over expectation, we've seen balanced attacks, and we've seen games of extreme rush rate over expectation. And it hasn't been like Detroit has remained rigid in the transition from game plan to game management, which typically occurs somewhere around the third possession of the game. In other words, the Lions have been capable of drawing up game plans to exploit the weaknesses of their opponents and have also been quick to adjust during games this season. That leaves them as one of the more dynamic offenses in the league. Up until a few weeks ago, the only glaring weakness from their offense was an inability to attack downfield, which largely changed once Jamison Williams got a couple of games under his belt. From a macro perspective, the Lions boast a top 10 defense in yards allowed per game, but have struggled to keep opponents out of the end zone, allowing 23.5 points per game, which ranks 24th, behind the highest red zone touchdown rate allowed, 68.57%. When this team cleans up their defense where it matters most, they are going to round third and head for home in their half-decade rebuild adventure. Rookie Jameer Gibbs has maintained a stranglehold on the lead-back duty since David Montgomery returned from injury three weeks ago, peaking at a 71% snap rate the last time out. Montgomery has seen snap rates of 38, 40, and 27% since returning from injury. Even so, Montgomery has been involved enough to keep Gibbs from seeing 20 or more running back opportunities, having peaked at 19 twice during the previous three games. Montgomery also remains the preferred short yardage back, meaning his number is routinely called inside the five-yard line for a team with the highest green zone rush rate in the league over the previous two seasons. As in, this team pounds the rock when they get inside the 10. That has led to touchdowns in three straight for Montgomery, which further saps upside away from Gibbs. Montgomery remains a relative zero in the passing game, while Gibbs has seen five or more targets in six straight contests. The pure rushing matchup sets up as a net positive considering the elite run blocking from the Detroit offensive line, which does take a hit if center Frank Ragnow misses with his midweek downgrade in practice. The Saints have allowed a robust 4.5 yards per carry this season, behind a middling 1.26 yards allowed before contact. The passing game for the Lions is very much dominated by Amon Ross St. Brown, who has absolutely erupted in his third professional season. Yes, this is still a wide receiver with a moderate ADOT, but his route running has improved with each passing year as a professional, and he remains the second most reliable wide receiver in the league, at least as far as consistency is concerned. Until last week when he put up 95 yards through the air, St. Brown had scored or surpassed 100 yards receiving in every game this season, meaning the one game where he failed to continue that streak, he did so by just 5 yards. St. Brown is going to see 7 or 8 targets as a floor, with an upside for 14-16 to 16 if the game environment dictates increased pass volume for the offense. Only he and rookie tight end Sam Laporta are currently operating in near-every-down roles, with Josh Reynolds and Jamison Williams settling into 60-70% to 70% roles, Khalif Raymond down in the 30-35% to 35% snap range, and Brock Wright handling 30-50% to 50% of the offensive snaps depending on personnel packages, which are most heavily influenced by game script. Teams have elevated their pass rates when playing the Saints this season, with the team seeing a 55.44% pass play rate against, 10th in the league which is interesting considering their pass defense is far better than their run defense by both DVOA and yards allowed per rush or pass. I would expect the Lions to bias their attack slightly to the ground in a run-balanced approach in this spot. How New Orleans will try to win. 
Man, oh man, I don't know if we will fully know how the Saints will try to win this one, considering they appear likely to be without their top two pass catchers against the Lions. That introduces more uncertainty regarding their likeliest game plan than other teams from around the league when you consider who is calling their offensive plays. Offensive coordinator Pete Carmichael has been known to draw up some absolutely bonkers game plans during his tenure, typically aiming to maximize the talent he has on the field. Where this team currently stands, it's difficult to get overly excited about the talent they are expected to have on the field, which includes a quarterback with extreme red zone struggles, an aging lead back, a couple of journeyman depth wide receivers, rookie wide receiver A.T. Perry, and do-it-all tight end Taysom Hill. That would all change if Olave can clear protocol, but recent history tends to indicate that is more a long shot than a sure thing. This brings us back to how the Saints are likely to approach this spot against an opponent that has not struggled to score points this season. We could see Taysom used as a tight end and wide receiver at elevated rates. We could see Alvin Kamara absolutely dominate targets. We could see Jawan Johnson be emphasized over the middle of the field. And we could see this team completely flop. Alvin Kamara's once lofty snap rates and opportunity shares have seen some major regression with Jamal Williams back in the fold, something that could revert back to increased involvement considering the multitude of injuries the Saints are currently dealing with. Kamara saw a massive 31 opportunities in Week 7, the first game that Williams returned to action, which included 14 targets. In the following four games, Kamara saw between 5 and 7 targets and failed to eclipse 22 opportunities. Again, that could change this week with both of Kamara's massive target games this season coming in negative game environment spots, but he saw a combined 12 targets in the previous two losses. There's just a massively wide range of outcomes from Kamara and the rest of the healthy Saints here. Williams has seen between 22 and 28% of the offensive snaps in four of five games since returning from injury, making it highly unlikely he sees enough usage to matter against a solid Detroit run defense. On that note, the Lions have held opposing backs to just 3.9 yards per carry behind swarming linebackers, allowing a robust 1.42 yards before contact this season. One of the Lions' most aggressive linebackers, Alec Anzalone, has yet to practice this week with a hand injury, placing his status in question for Sunday. The passing game is shaping up to be a veritable disaster. The top three healthy wide receivers appear to be rookie A.T. Perry in his third NFL game, he missed the first half of the season on IR, and journeyman veterans Lynn Bowden and Keith Kirkwood. That is likeliest to lead to increased 12 personnel rates through Jawan Johnson and Foster Moreau, with the ever-present possibility that Taysom Hill becomes this super-utility player seeing snaps all over the field. The primary area of weakness for the Lions' pass defense this season has been with splash plays. Having allowed above-average rates of explosive plays from both man and zone coverages, they're in man and zone around league average rates. Perry dominated the college game on 7-9 to nine routes, but we have a very small sample of his professional work, leaving at least some level of upside in the areas that the Lions have struggled with most. Beyond that, and beyond the potential for some fluky stuff to happen through Taysom Hill or Alvin Kamara seeing an ungodly amount of targets, your guess is as good as mine. The final piece of consideration is what is likeliest to occur should Olave return and Shahid miss, which is probably the second most likely scenario. In that case, Olave should be expected to command an elite target share, and he possesses the skill set to feast in the areas of the field the Lions struggle to defend. Likeliest Game Flow This game environment carries such a wide range of potential outcomes, primarily influenced by the Saints. Their injury situation, paired with Carmichael's eclectic play-calling history, make it damn near impossible to accurately project what is likeliest to happen in this spot, which directly influences how we would expect the Lions to behave in this spot. We'll have to wait until later in the week to draw any sweeping conclusions from these two teams. We'll do our best to spend some additional time with this game in the end around and on the slate pod on Saturday.
From a macro perspective, we should expect the Lions to start run balanced against a Saints defense that has struggled with yards allowed after contact this season. Where it goes from there is likely over to the Saints' ability to sustain drives and punch it in once they enter the red zone against a Lions defense that has really struggled with red zone defense this season. Falcons at Jets. Kickoff Sunday, December 3rd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 34. Game Overview by Hilo. Falcons wide receiver Mac Hollins has an ankle injury, but he returned to a limited session Wednesday after missing the previous two games. Somewhat miraculously, Jets QB Aaron Rodgers returned to the practice field on Wednesday after tearing his Achilles three months ago. I would say he's highly unlikely to play this week, but he was also highly unlikely to return to practice in under three months on a five to six month injury. Jets running back Brees Hall is nursing a hamstring injury and was limited on Wednesday. I expect he plays on Sunday. The Falcons lead the league in rush rate over expectation and are facing a Jets team facing the most rush attempts per game this season. How Atlanta will try to win. The Falcons rank third in the league in rush attempts per game at 32 and lead the league in rush rate over expectation. They are now playing the team facing the most rush attempts per game at 33.2. It should come as no surprise that we fully expect Atlanta to lean into the run game at extreme rates in this spot. A defense allowing 321.1 yards of offense per game, which ranks 14th, and, more importantly, keeping opponents out of the end zone, they are third-ranked 38.24% red zone touch rate allowed, has allowed the Falcons to continue to utilize this ultra-conservative offense that aims to shorten games. At just 19.4 points scored per game, it's not like this team is setting out to set the world on fire as much as inch towards victories on their own terms. Their 5-6 record should highlight how effective that plan has been for them this season, backed up by them hilariously leading the NFC South division while both having a losing record and being outscored by 19 points this year. Even so, they lead the NFC South division through two-thirds of the NFL season, so it's difficult to be overly critical of their seemingly antiquated methods. Speaking of their ground-and-pound attack, rookie running back Bijan Robinson has been in this undulating role that has bounced between lead back and tick below bell cow status all season. On the whole, he has seen just 50.6% of the team's running back opportunities, which breaks down to 12.8 carries and 4.3 targets per game, both well below elite levels. Even so, he ranks 8th in the league with 703 rush yards, has run the most routes of any back in the league, and has a solid yet unspectacular 15.3% team target market share, which is good for 6th. Furthermore, Two of his three highest workload games have come his last two times out, seeing 24 opportunities against the Cardinals in Week 10 and 22 opportunities against the Saints in Week 12. They had a bye in Week 11. He also ranks 6th in juke rate and 12th in yards per touch this season. We would ideally love to see more consistent volume for his inflated salary, but his per-touch efficiency keeps him in the discussion without elite volume, and a player like that always carries immense ceiling on the offhand chance the volume begins to come around which it appears possible is happening now. Running back Tyler Algier, fullback Keith Smith, and utility knife Corderell Patterson remain annoyingly involved, each seeing around 30% of the team's offensive snaps in each of the previous two games. The matchup on the ground is more unimposing than elite, with the bulk of the damage done against the Jets this season coming purely from volume. The Jets seed middling values in yards allowed per carry, 4.3, and yards allowed before contact, 1.27. 
Quarterback Desmond Ritter was the fantasy value black hole starter that was, then wasn't, then was again for the Falcons, soaking up a frustrating amount of fantasy value on the ground through four rushing scores while not truly supporting a single pass catcher throughout his eight starts this season. Even so, the team has seemingly recommitted to him as the team's starting quarterback after Taylor Heineke entered the discussion due to injury, but then suffered an injury of his own. From a top-level perspective, this is a team that runs extreme rates of 12 personnel, which makes sense considering their enthrallment to the run game. From a micro-perspective, Drake London is the only pass catcher playing even a near-every-down role for this offense, while tight end Kyle Pitts has seen a 70% snap rate or higher in just three games this season. Before missing two games with injury, Mac Hollins had lost his hold on a near-every-down role at wide receiver, instead sharing the wide receiver two role with Carterell Hodge, Van Jefferson, and Scotty Miller. And then there's the matchup against the Jets' defense holding opponents to 5.4 net pass yards per attempt, with 13 pass touchdowns allowed to 12 interceptions. How New York will try to win Head coach Robert Sala indicated immediately following the team's Week 12 loss that he intended to give quarterback Tim Boyle another look as the starting quarterback, a sentiment that should not be swept under the rug with the return of Aaron Rodgers to the practice field. In other words, it remains highly likely the Jets are quarterbacked by Boyle against the Falcons, which further adds to the likelihood that the Falcons are able to control the game environment via their backfield. The Jets rank near middle of the pack in PROE and pass attempts per game, 34.2 per game, ranks 19th, which is interesting considering some of Sala's recent comments to the media regarding his primary running back. Sala came out and said that Brees Hall needs to get better at earning the nitty-gritty yards instead of trying to hit a home run with every carry. And while that seems baseless on the surface for how highly the fantasy community regards Hall, his words bear some level of truth. Hall has the most evaded tackles and the third-highest juke rate this season, but also carries one of the highest stuffed rush rates in the league at 25.6%, placing him as one of the more boom-bust running backs in the league. The biggest problem is that Dalvin Cook has been one of the least efficient backs in the league by most metrics, and the team let go of Michael Carter prior to Week 11. Carter's departure shifted Cook's role into more of a pure passing situation shell, while also making rookie Israel Abanaconda active for the first time this season in Week 11. This is Hall's backfield, but routine negative game script has held him below 16 carries in all but one game this season. A robust pass game role seemed to increase with Boyle under center, but his nine targets has to be taken under the backdrop of 38 total pass attempts. Even so, Hall's solid all-around game should keep him around 16 to 18 running back opportunities in most weeks. The pure matchup on the ground is middling against a Falcons defense allowing 4.1 yards per carry behind a tiny 1.18 yards allowed before contact. The Jets shook things up further in Week 12 by making wide receiver Alan Lazard a game-day inactive, vaulting rookie undrafted free agent Jason Brownlee into a major role on the perimeter alongside established second-year wide receiver Garrett Wilson and fellow undrafted free agent Xavier Gibson in the slot. Randall Cobb was active in Week 12 for the first time in four weeks, but it appears as if Sala is intent on seeing what his youth can provide with the team sitting at four wins. Along those lines, I find it highly unlikely that Aaron Rodgers returns to the field to play this season unless the team wins their next two games, as they currently sit two games out of the seventh and final playoff spot out of the AFC. Either way, Wilson is the alpha and omega of this pass offense, seeing double-digit looks in six of 11 games played this year. That said, he has returned GPP viable fantasy production in exactly zero contests this season, if considering only his season-low Week 13 salary. Expect tight end Tyler Conklin in a sub-elite role alongside C.J. Uzama and Jeremy Ruckert. 
Not a ton to love here with Boyle under center. Likeliest game flow. The Falcons are highly likely to be able to control the tempo and tone of this game via their backfield, considering how this matchup sets up. That should mute overall intrigue with the game environment, as well as removing many of the pieces from fantasy consideration. Furthermore, the high zone coverage rates from the Falcons should provide a more difficult schematic hurdle for Tim Boyle, who has almost three times as many interceptions as touchdown passes in his five-year career. Small sample, but 11 picks to four touchdowns is not good, Bob. Any takeaways from the Falcons' defense should only heighten their chances of controlling the game environment and winning dirty, which is about the only way this team has remained with their head above water entering the final third of the season. The DFS Plus interpretation section of this one is going to be sparse, to say the least. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Cardinals at Steelers. Kickoff Sunday, December 3rd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 41. Game Overview by Hilo. Cardinals wide receiver Marquise Brown has a heel injury. Tight end Trey McBride has a groin injury and wide receiver Michael Wilson has a shoulder injury. They all did not practice Wednesday. Wilson appears to be the one most at risk of missing Week 13 after failing to practice to start the week after two consecutive missed games. Steelers wide receiver and kick returner Calvin Austin has an ankle injury and did not practice Wednesday. This is a game between the team with the third highest rush rate over expectation, Arizona, and the team with the fourth highest rush rate over expectation, Pittsburgh. Overall play volume is likely to be an issue here how Arizona will try to win. The Cardinals currently hold the third highest rush rate over expectation, run their offense with the fourth highest overall pace at 27.3 seconds per play, and average just over 61 offensive plays per game. The NFL average is just over 63. They average a paltry 17.3 points per game, 18.3 per game in Kyler's three starts, and allow a massive 26.8 points per game, good for 31st in the league. Furthermore, quarterback Kyler Murray has been one of the least efficient quarterbacks in the league this season by EPADB, expected points added per drawback. Basically, this team is a dumpster fire. That said, the Cardinals held a positive PROE value for the first time in a while last week against the Rams, which should be taken in context with the extreme negative game script they encountered. Even so, an inefficient offense with an inefficient quarterback does not instill the greatest deal of confidence moving forward. The Cardinals cut bait on underperforming running back Keontae Ingram before their Week 12 loss, bringing in Michael Carter from the Jets to take his spot on the roster. Carter proceeded to play a hefty 38% of the offensive snaps in a blowout loss, seeing eight running back opportunities to the 11 of starter James Conner. While that does not necessarily spell the end of Conner as the lead back, it does paint an ominous picture for his expected snap rates and opportunity shares moving forward. In other words, was Connor seeing borderline elite snap rates and team opportunity shares over the previous two seasons because the team legitimately just didn't have anyone behind him that they could trust? As things currently stand with this team's backfield, expect Connor to act as the primary back, Amari Demarcado to operate as the top change of pace option, and Carter to serve as the obvious passing down back. The matchup on the ground against the Steelers presents an unimposing spot as Pittsburgh has allowed 4.3 yards per carry behind a middling 1.3 yards allowed before contact. Marquise Brown is the clear alpha of the offense, but he has had to fight through consistently poor quarterback play this season 
and has played through a heel injury in each of the previous two games, and he's on the injury report again this week with that same heel injury. Second-year tight end Trey McBride carries the top underlying metrics against zone coverage for the Cardinals, but the Steelers are in man at the sixth-highest rate in the league, at just under 32%. Rookie wide receiver Michael Wilson has missed the previous two games after earning a near-every-down role for the Cardinals, which has opened up additional playing time for the only other pass catcher on this team that has consistently earned targets outside of Brown and McBride, diminutive wide receiver Greg Dortch. With Wilson sidelined, Dortch has played 75 and 76% of the offensive snaps in the previous two games, most notably playing over Zach Pascal for the first time this season. Rondell Moore is the on-paper wide receiver two in this offense, but has historically struggled to command targets when on the field, generating poor per-route efficiency metrics throughout his career. From a macro perspective, Brown has commanded targets at an elite rate against man coverage this season, seeing a solid 29.5% TPRR, but catching just 11 of 23 looks against that primary coverage this year. Hint, teams play very low rates of man coverage against the Cardinals' anemic offense. How Pittsburgh will try to win The Steelers have an average scoring margin of minus 2.1 points this season, yet they currently control their own destiny for a playoff spot with a 7-4 record. In other words, Mike Tomlin continues to find ways to win games while being outscored by 23 points this season. In fact, only the Steelers, Broncos, and Seahawks hold a winning record while being outscored this season, and the Broncos were outscored by 50 points in a single game against the Dolphins. But that kind of reinforces what we've seen with the Steelers under Tomlin's tenure. This team wants to win dirty, and they've all but perfected the craft. This season, that has translated into absurd rush rates, low play volume, and an aggressive defense that aims to disrupt drives. The Steelers haven't given up more than 20 points since Week 4 against the Texans, and have done so just three times all season, all of which came in the first four weeks. Be disruptive on defense, lock down in the red zone, take the game into the fourth quarter, and try to get out of dodge with a win. That is the blueprint for the Steelers this season. Against a highly unimposing opponent such as the Cardinals, expect rather muted aggression and elevated rush rates. The Steelers fired offensive coordinator Matt Canada before the team's Week 12 contest, which, interestingly enough, was the first time the franchise had fired a coach during the season since 1941. I found that interesting. That's how many lives Canada ran through in Pittsburgh. Well, anyway... Former running backs coach Eddie Faulkner took over as the interim offensive coordinator and proceeded to give the running back duo of Najee Harris and Jalen Warren 28 combined carries against another unimposing opponent in the Burrowless Bengals. Warren was named the starter three games ago, but his role has quite literally not changed in the slightest. He was outsnapped and outtouched by Harris in each of those three games. If anything, this backfield is going to continue to be a maddening near-even split between the two, with Harris the likelier back to see green zone touches, and Warren the likelier back to carry the heftier pass game role. Harris is also the only back of the two to have a game with 20 or more running back opportunities, doing so thrice. Before we get too excited, he landed at exactly 20 running back opportunities in each instance. The matchup on the ground is a good one against a Cardinals defense seeding 4.5 yards per carry and 16 total rushing scores through 12 games played. The biggest problem for us DFSers is that the expected production from the Pittsburgh run game is likely to be split evenly between the two primary backs. Here are the snap rates and target totals for the primary pass catchers in the first game without Matt Canada. George Pickens, 75%, 5 targets. Deontay Johnson, 73%, 8 targets. Pat Fryermuth, 59%, 11 targets. 
Allen Robinson, 63%, one target. Jalen Warren, 48%, three targets. Other than the clear indication that the path of least resistance against the Bengals' heavy zone rates was through the tight end, there is absolutely nothing to love from that distribution. In fact, I want no part of that at all. Along those lines, Fryermuth is likely to be rather popular this week, but sees his individual matchup swing the other direction against a Cardinals defense that clogs the middle of the field. In other words, Cincinnati's high zone rates do not equal Arizona's high zone rates from a micro matchup perspective. Now consider that it remains highly unlikely that Kenny Pickett is asked to drop back more than 28 to 32 times, and there isn't a ton to love from this spot. Likeliest Game Flow The newfound emphasis on the run game for the Steelers should allow them to largely control this game environment on the ground, which saps a lot of the upside from the pieces in this game. That notion is made even more exaggerated when you consider the split nature of the Pittsburgh backfield, leaving very few paths to fantasy goodness out of this one. The poor efficiency of Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray also reduces the paths to fantasy eruption from this game environment. That said, as we've talked about over the previous three weeks, Jonathan Gannon's recent trend of not mailing in the season and trying to figure out what he has for the future is most beneficial to whoever the Cardinals are playing, as opposed to being a significant boost to the players from Arizona. It's just that there aren't any clear paths for volume and production to concentrate from the Steelers in what is now a highly unconcentrated offense. Panthers at Bucks. Kickoff Sunday, December 3rd, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 37. Game Overview by Pappy. The Panthers have the worst record in the league and just fired their head coach. They replaced him with Chris Tabor, who has never held a position in the NFL above special teams coordinator. Bryce Young has the look of an NFL bust. The Panthers traded two first-round picks and DJ Moore for him, which will likely keep them bad for a long time. Jonathan Mingo has played over 90% of the snaps in every game since the Panthers' bye week. It hasn't paid off in the box scores yet, but he's the type of player who can post a 30-point game out of nowhere. Chuba Hubbard has become the Panthers' lead back after they gave Miles Sanders a big off-season deal. Hubbard has played more snaps than Sanders every single game since the Panthers' bye, but Sanders still plays enough to cap Hubbard's ceiling. The Buccaneers have been a pass-leaning team this year out of necessity, not choice. There is a good chance Rashad White sees the most rushing attempts he has had this season. Mike Evans is functioning as the alpha pass catcher of this offense, while Chris Godwin has become a possession receiver. How Carolina will try to win. The 1 in 10 Panthers hobble into week 13 with the worst record in football. The Panthers are so bad, David Tepper decided to let Frank Reich go after not even a full season as the head coach. To make matters worse, the Panthers traded two first-round picks, one of which might end up being first overall, and DJ Moore to the Bears for the right to draft Bryce Young. A move Reich may or may not have agreed to do after reports surfaced that he preferred C.J. Stroud before the season. Reich then publicly backed picking Young, but what was he supposed to do at that point? Either way, Reich is out and is being replaced by Chris Tabor as the interim head coach. If you haven't heard of Tabor, you aren't alone. He's been in the NFL since 2008, but he's never been more than a special teams coordinator. He is probably a popular coach who the players will accept as a figurehead to finish out the year. That's the only thing that makes sense about him being promoted, and it's likely that Panthers OC Thomas Brown will continue calling plays. The Panthers have played at a moderate pace, 14th overall, but seem to play quicker on the road, 6th, and slower, 24th, at home. Those splits might just be game flow noise, but since they're always losing, it's at least worth noting that they appear to play much faster on the road. The Bucks have been respectable against the run, 13th in DVOA, and poor against the pass, 
ranked 20th in DVOA. The DVOA numbers don't tell the full extent of their run and pass defense disparity. The Bucks are 8th in yards allowed per carry and 29th in yards allowed per pass. The Bucks might not quite be the pass funnel they were a few years ago, but they are significantly stronger against the run, and most teams have decided it's best to attack them through the air. The Panthers want to run more than pass. They rank 18th in PROE, but they have passed at a 66% pass rate, good for the 5th highest rate in the league. Those discrepancies are because they're always losing, which they should be doing again this week. The Bucks are best attacked through the air, and the Panthers have no reason to be conservative. Their season is over. They might as well let Young cut it loose and see what he can give them for the future. Expect the Panthers to come out with a more pass-leaning game plan than usual to see what Young can do, with attacking the weakness of the Bucks' defense being a happy accident. How Tampa Bay will try to win The 4-7 Bucks come into Week 13 off two straight losses against the Colts and 49ers. Amazingly, they're still only one game out of the division lead. Being 4-7 and seven and still having a realistic shot at winning your division is insane, but such is life in the NFC South. Todd Bowles talked a lot about being more balanced after the departure of Tom Brady, and in fairness, he has attempted to keep his word. The Bucks have tried to be a lot more balanced this year. They rank 13th in PROE, but have ended up leaning pass-heavy with an 8th-ranked pass rate because they're typically chasing points. The Bucks are still built to pass, and they're willing to lean into their strength when push comes to shove. The Bucks have also slowed way down this year, good for 16th in pace, a far cry from the warp speed they played at under Brady. Bowles has tried to distance himself from the way the team played under Brady, but the team was built to play Brady's style, and it's been hard to entirely turn off the old ways in one season. The Panthers have been abused on the ground, 32nd in DVOA, and are below average against the pass, 22nd in DVOA. As has been discussed for several weeks around OWS, the Panthers are the league's premier run funnel. They have had their clocks cleaned in the run game, and most importantly, every team they face actively attacks their leaky run defense. They have been hit by almost every lead back they've faced this season for a strong game. The Bucks have been a pass-leaning team out of necessity, not choice. Rashad White has averaged 17.25 carries in the Bucks' four wins, 14.25 carries in the Bucks' four one-score losses, and 10 carries in the Bucks' three multiple-score losses. This is a prime spot for them to lean into their run game as a home favorite against the softest run defense in football. It wouldn't be shocking to see the Bucks have their highest rushing attempt total of the year. Expect the Bucks to come in with a run-first game plan and stick with that plan if they win. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a tiny 37-point total, which is mostly because the Panthers aren't expected to do much scoring. The Panthers' offense hasn't been able to do anything in the air, 28th in DVOA, or on the ground, 30th in DVOA. They've scored 173 points, which is the fourth lowest in the league, ahead of only the lowly Giants, Jets, and Patriots offenses. The Bucks' defense is still tough against the run, and Young doesn't look like he can carry the offense through the air. The most likely outcome is the Panthers' offense struggles like they have all year, while the Bucks find success on the ground and stick with that strategy throughout the game. That type of game would result in a lot of running from the Bucks and a lot of ineffective passing from the Panthers. That is the most likely outcome, with the Bucks able to take an early lead and salt it away with a heavy dose of ground and pound in the fourth quarter. The Colts at the Titans. Kick off Sunday, December 3rd at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 42.5.
Game Overview by Hilo. Colts running back Jonathan Taylor, Thumb, is likely to miss the next two or three weeks for the Colts, potentially longer. That leaves Zach Moss as the unquestioned lead back for the time being, after the veteran ran in a true workhorse role earlier in the season in the absence of Taylor. Titans quarterback Will Levis, ankle, and wide receiver Traylon Burks, concussion, returned to full practices on Thursday. Burks is attempting to return from three straight missed games with his head injury. Zach Moss, $4,600 on DK, should be considered the top on-paper play of the slate. He is likely to be extremely popular, so roster construction will be important if playing him. How Indianapolis will try to win The Colts have proven that they would prefer to be a run-balanced team, but they are also not afraid to open things up if the game environment calls for it this year. In this spot, against a gutted Tennessee offense that is highly unlikely to push a game environment on their own merit, it becomes increasingly likely that the Colts are allowed to maintain a run-balanced stance. The big change is that the bulk of the run in run-balanced should flow through one man, Zach Moss. Another big change from how we would normally view this spot has to do with the Titans and their opponents' trends this season. Over the last three or four years, the Titans forced extremely high rates of passing against due to a top-run defense. This year, however, they have faced the sixth-highest rush rate against at 53.92%. That should all come together to paint a clear picture of the likeliest plan of attack for the Colts here, with a lean towards the ground in a run-balanced attack. As was mentioned above, Zach Moss started the season as the unquestioned lead back for the Colts, handling snap rates between 76% and 98% while seeing opportunity counts of 22, 33, 19, and 25 over a four-game sample. That, my friends, is elite. One of those games, oddly enough, came against these same Titans when he put up 36.5 DK points on 23 carries and two targets. Expect Trey Sermon to operate as the loose change of pace back behind Moss, who just saw 28 offensive snaps in the two games he acted as the direct backup to Moss earlier in the season. The matchup on the ground is difficult on paper against a Titans defense yielding just 3.8 yards per carry behind the lowest yards before contact allowed in the league, 1.08. But again, the Titans have allowed rushing volume to offset the poor expected efficiency from opposing backs. The Colts have utilized near-league average rates of 12 personnel, largely dependent on game flow. Michael Pittman and Alec Pierce operate in every-down roles, while the wide receiver three position has largely been shared by Isaiah McKenzie and Josh Downs of late. Downs started the season as the clear wide receiver three, but played behind McKenzie in Week 9 and Week 10, but played behind McKenzie in Week 9 and Week 10 before McKenzie got hurt in Week 12. McKenzie returned to practice on Thursday and appears likely to suit up against the Titans, leaving some level of uncertainty in the expected snap rate split between the two. Either way, Pittman and Pierce should be the only two in near-every-down roles considering the three-way rotation at tight end. The Titans have allowed 6.5 net yards per pass attempt this season, which ranks 8th worst in the league, so this should not be viewed as a prohibitive spot through the air. Even so, this pass offense leaves the options rather slim. It's basically Pittman or nobody. Pittman went over 100 yards through the air for just the second time this season in Week 12, highlighting his need for volume in a modest A-dot role. 
That volume is less likely to be extreme in this spot considering the opponent, leaving him with fewer paths to GPP viable production. How Tennessee will try to win. Look, I get it. The entire world was clamoring for Will Levis to continue starting for the Titans due to his arm strength and gunslinger mentality. I have news for you. Will Levis does not give this team the best chance of winning football games in the year 2023. But that might not be the worst thing for the Titans, who appear destined for a full rebuild in 2024. Franchise back Derrick Henry is in the final year of his contract. The offensive line has been completely blown up over the previous three seasons, and this team does not have the same staying power on offense to take the pressure off a defense that has big names up and down the roster. The answer very clearly wasn't Ryan Tannehill, who ranked 32nd in passer rating while tossing only six touchdowns to seven interceptions through six games. Either way, Levis has shown extreme difficulties diagnosing opposing defenses this season, struggling particularly against cover two, which forces a quarterback to go through his progressions and throw players open. The somewhat good news on that front is the heavy cover three rates utilized by the Colts, which presents a slightly more clear picture pre-snap when compared to cover two. Knowing all of that, I would expect the Titans to operate from a run-balanced base until otherwise forced. When passing, expect a scheme aimed at targeting the short to intermediate areas of the field behind the linebackers and in front of the safeties. Derrick Henry has been capped around 65% of the offensive snaps in competitive game environments this season, ceding additional snaps and opportunities to primary change of pace back Ty J. Spears in negative environments. That has left Henry with just five games this season of 20 running back opportunities or more. Pair that with the decreased efficiency due to the changes up front, and Henry has just two games all season with 20 or more DK points. He does have four additional games of 18 to 19 DK points, but the points remain. His ceiling is now highly questionable, having surpassed 100 yards on the ground just twice this season. The matchup on the ground is non-prohibitive against a Colts defense, allowing 4.2 yards per carry behind 1.25 yards allowed before contact. The Titans' pass offense is difficult to get a read on from week to week, as even DeAndre Hopkins has just one game with more than 69% of the offensive snaps since the team's Week 7 bye, 79% in Week 10. It looks like Chris Moore's recent run of increased snaps is coming to an end, with Traylon Burks expected back this week. Even so, I wouldn't expect Burks to immediately jump into elite snap rates and opportunities considering the recent rotation at wide receiver from the Titans, making it more likely we see Nick Westbrook-Ekine, Burks, Moore, and Kyle Phillips continue in a loose rotation heavily influenced by situational packages. Pair that with a tight end rotation between Chagosia Monconquo, Trayvon Wesco, and Josh Wiley, and there's not a ton to love from the Titans on a weekly basis. Likeliest Game Flow It remains extremely likely that the Colts are able to control this game on the ground, considering their elite run-blocking and variable and elite run-blocking scheme. The Colts have proven on multiple occasions to be capable of overcoming difficult on-paper matchups on the ground, which this spot does present them with. Even so, elite volume at $4,600 in salary is going to be a difficult profile to pass on as far as DFS is concerned. More on Zach Moss later in the week. With the expected game flow in mind, Michael Pittman and DeAndre Hopkins would be the only other players in fantasy consideration, 
And even then, their combination of expected volume, rolls, and or snap rates leave a lot to be desired here. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Dolphins at the Commanders. Kick off Sunday, December 3rd at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 49.5. Game Overview by Hilo. The Miami injury report is about 15 players deep, but it appears like the only two players in danger of missing Week 13 are Javon Holland and Kendall Lamb. Dolphins running back Devon Achain, knee, got in consecutive limited sessions to start the week, while wide receiver Tyreek Hill, ankle, upgraded from DNP to limited Thursday. Dolphins running back Raheem Mostert, ankle, knee, upgraded from DNP to limited on Thursday and appears likely to play. The Commanders fired defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio after the team's Week 12 game and brought in former Buffalo Bills secondary coach Jim Salgado on an interim basis. Clearly, this team was tired of getting torched deep. Whether that helps against the Dolphins remains entirely up in the air. The Commanders have been a fantasy goldmine this season, not for the Commanders themselves, but for their opponents. Washington leads the league in pass play rate and has been torched through the air, paving the way for some absolutely monstrous fantasy performances from pass catchers playing against them this year. I expect the Commanders to play more zone coverage with Ron Rivera now fully in charge of the defense, also likely to introduce more unique blitz packages from zone. Those sweeping changes take time, particularly when you've been playing extreme rates of man coverage this season and now move to the more communication-heavy zone. All of that to say, don't expect significant improvements in defensive efficiency from the Commanders against the Dolphins. How Miami Will Try to Win the Dolphins have undergone an awakening of sorts this season. Improved defensive efficiency, an elite pass rush, and an explosive run game has allowed them to be even more unpredictable on offense, which has taken the form of reduced pass rates and a more dynamic run game. No longer is this team simply passing on every play for an entire drive as they were found doing on multiple occasions last season. The best way to relate this change is to say that Mike McDaniel has a little less mad in his mad genius title. He's still a damn offensive wizard, but he's going about his offensive game management in a more nuanced way this year when compared to last season. The beauty of that nuanced change means his team is a bit more cohesive and less frantic, which has done wonders for their ability to win in different ways this season. All of that to say, they completely outmatch the Commanders in every area on the football field this week, likely leaving the fantasy upside in the hands of extreme efficiency and an ability to score touchdowns. Worry not, friends. This team carries the ability to hammer those areas in spades. Expect a balanced but aggressive offensive design against an opponent that has bled explosive plays this season. While it currently appears likely that electric rookie running back Devon A-Chain returns to action in Week 13 after consecutive limited practices, it shouldn't be viewed as a sure thing considering his four-game absence with a knee injury only to tweak the ailment on three offensive snaps, forcing another missed game. Basically, A-Chain hasn't been in action in what amounts to six weeks. 
During that time, Salvan Ahmed served as the preferred change of pace back in the duo over Jeff Wilson, until the former hit injured reserve himself. Regardless of whether it's A-Chain or Wilson as the two in the one-two punch, expect Mostert to operate in a lead-back-but-below-bell-cow role, typically in the 60-65% to snap rate range. Even with those snap rate handcuffs on, Mostert has managed opportunity counts of 24 and 20 over the previous two games and should once again be in line to approach or surpass 20 opportunities here, assuming health. That should leave 10 to 12 opportunities to the primary change of pace back, depending on game flow. The matchup on the ground is a solid one against a Washington defense yielding 4.4 yards per carry behind a robust 1.38 yards allowed before contact. The Commanders have surrendered only seven rushing scores this season, which is more of a nod to how easy it has been to score through the air on them than it is some glaring successes defending the run. They have allowed an insane 28 passing scores through 12 games played. Tyreek Hill is on pace to make good on his preseason prediction of a 2,000-yard season. He has been the most consistent fantasy producer of all skill position players this year, surpassing 100 yards through the air in 7 of 11 contests and scoring 10 total touchdowns to this point in the season. He is averaging over 120 yards per game with a required pace of 113 yards per game needed to eclipse the 2,000-yard mark. There isn't a ton left to say about this man on the football field. He has been elite. Furthermore, he has seen double-digit targets in all but three games this season. A matchup against a commander's defense allowing the highest rate of explosive pass plays against sounds like exactly the matchup he needs to keep pace. And it isn't like this man is running only downfield looks. On the contrary, his 10.0 ADOT ranks just 67th in the league, and his route tree has grown during the 2023 season. On top of all that goodness, the man carries an insane 35.4 red zone target share and leads the league in TPRR at 36.7%. The biggest knock to his upside is a general tendency to remove him from the field and blow out wins, as he already has four games of 60% snap rate or less this season. The team is figuring out how to best utilize Jalen Waddell in conjunction with Hill as the talented third-year receiver has put up 100-yard games in two of his previous four contests after failing to do so during the first seven weeks of the season. Waddell's 26.6% TPRR rate feels light years behind that of Hill's, but still ranks 17th in the league. His 16.7% red zone target share is the biggest difference between the two, making it evident what the team wants to do with the football once they enter the red zone, and also helps explain his comparatively small three receiving scores this year. The remaining wide receiver snaps and opportunities should be divided amongst Braxton Berrios, Cedric Wilson, and River Craycraft, with tight end Durham Smythe now an afterthought in the offensive design. How Washington will try to win the Commanders are entering, or leaving, I don't know, I'm not totally sure how to read the situation just yet, a stage of identity crisis after firing defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio and bringing in former Buffalo Bills secondary coach Jim Salgado on an interim basis. That's all well and fine considering they have been absolutely torched through the air this season, but it remains a difficult task to turn around a defense during one week of practice particularly when their opponent leads the league in splash play rate this season. And that came about a month after the team traded away their top defensive players in Montez Sweat and Chase Young. 
The other side of the football has been a fantasy goldmine this season, not for the commanders themselves, but for their opponents. Washington leads the league in pass play rate and has been torched through the air, paving the way for some absolutely monstrous fantasy performances from pass catchers playing against them this year. Expect those offensive tendencies to remain sticky moving forward, considering Eric Bieniemy was retained through the layoffs. Leadback Brian Robinson continues to flirt with elite ceiling this season, as he remains the only running back to post two weeks of overall running back one status. That said, he has just one other game all season over a modest 13.6 DK points in an offense that slings the football around the yard. Furthermore, he has just two games all season with a snap rate north of 56%, week 1, 61%, and week 11 with Antonio Gibson out of action, 78%. Their opponent in week 13 should also not help his volume troubles, considering the Dolphins rank second in the league in points per game at a robust 30.8 average. Gibson typically resides right around 10 opportunities per game, rendering him completely useless from a fantasy perspective. The matchup on the ground presents a difficult setup against a Dolphins defense holding opposing backs to 3.8 yards per carry behind a solid 1.21 yards allowed before contact this season. We've talked all season about the fact that more pass volume isn't necessarily a massive boost to the individual upside for the primary pass catchers on this team, and that doesn't change much against the Dolphins. Sure, quarterback Sam Howell leads the league in pass attempts. But this is still a team that has supported just two instances of a single player eclipsing 100 yards through the air this season. One for Jahan Dodson, and one for Curtis Samuel, the latter of whom hit the mark on the head in Week 12. Alpha wide receiver Terry McLaurin has four of the seven instances of a single pass catcher hitting double-digit looks this season, but has somewhat surprisingly not yet breached 100 yards and has scored only twice all season. The Dolphins have also held opponents to just 5.6 net yards per pass attempt this season, which ranks 7th in the league behind only the Jets, 49ers, Chiefs, Cowboys, Browns, and Ravens. Furthering that likely struggle here is a defense generating pressure at an above-average 26.4% rate, 4th, while blitzing only 21.3% of the time, which does not line up well with an offensive line allowing the third-highest rate of pressure this season. Expect the bulk of the passing volume to flow to the short-to-intermediate middle of the field, which more or less aligns with the recent schematical changes we've seen from the Commanders over the previous month of play. They've reduced their sack rate allowed by tailoring their offense to get the ball out quicker. Likeliest Game Flow It remains highly unlikely that the defensive struggles of the Commanders' secondary are immediately remedied by the removal of defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio considering head coach Ron Rivera has had his hand in the defense the entire season. The biggest defensive changes I expect from the commanders moving forward are lower rates of man coverage and more unique blitz packages from the zone. Those two changes should theoretically allow this team to give up fewer explosive plays and disrupt more drives, both of which should help them improve upon their dead last rank in points allowed per game, 29.2. The problem is that sweeping changes like that take time, and this team moved on from Del Rio this week, meaning any boost in expected defensive efficiency by playing more zone is likely to be offset by the potential for more communication errors, particularly against a team like the Dolphins. 
As such, expect the Dolphins to score a plenty in this spot, which should serve to elevate the overall game environment considering the already pass-heavy ways of the Commanders. Completely wheels up, my friends. The Broncos at the Texans kick off Sunday, December 3rd at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 47.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Denver enters this game on a five-game winning streak, having beaten several playoff teams over that time. Rookie sensation C.J. Stroud will have his work cut out for him this week against a red-hot Broncos defense. This game is surprisingly very important in the AFC playoff picture as both teams sit at 6-5 and five with paths to a playoff berth. The Broncos' offense continues to be very conservative, leaning on their defense to set them up with short fields off turnovers. This game has the second-highest implied total of the week on the main slate. How Denver will try to win The Broncos have bounced back from an embarrassing start to the year that was highlighted by a 50-point loss to the Dolphins and are now in the thick of the AFC playoff race. This rejuvenation has been led by their defense holding six straight opponents to 22 or fewer points and forcing 15 turnovers in their last four games. The Broncos have won five straight games and all of those wins came against teams who are currently in the playoff hunt with records of five and six or better. That is critical information because we often see teams on these hot streaks, but it has happened thanks to soft spots in the schedule. The Broncos seem for real and appear like they will be a tough out for the remainder of the season. The Broncos are one of only 12 NFL teams who throw the ball on fewer than 60% of their offensive plays. They rank 26th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, and Russell Wilson ranks second to last in the NFL in average intended air yards per pass attempt among qualifying healthy QBs. The only regular starting quarterback who is pushing the ball downfield less than Wilson this season is Bryce Young, and we all know how much that Panthers offense has struggled. Those rate stats tell the story of an extremely conservative Broncos offense that is asking Wilson to just manage the game and don't lose it for us. When throwing the ball, Cortland Sutton has been the primary wide receiver target and has had some success in the red zone. Jerry Judy and Marvin Mims have also been more involved recently but the overall lack of aggression through the air has left the Broncos' passing game as a spot of frustration and inconsistency. The Broncos' running game involves three players, with Javante Williams leading the way and coming off his highest snap rate of the season. Williams has opportunities, carries plus targets, counts of 24, 13, 25, 30, and 19 during the Broncos' five-game winning streak. Both Samaj P. Ryan and Jaleel McLaughlin remain involved, and both of them see targets and some goal line work on a weekly basis. But the high volume of rushing for Denver, along with Wilson's propensity to check down to the running backs, keep this as a situation with plenty of volume. Denver is on a roll and has the playoffs squarely in their sights. Four of their five games after this week are against teams who currently have losing records, giving the Broncos a terrific chance at making the playoffs. Knocking off the Texans, who have the same record as the Broncos, would be huge for their playoff chances. They have ridden a conservative offensive game plan and an opportunistic defense to this point and will look to do the same here, 
hoping to slow things down rather than getting into a track meet with the young gunslinger quarterback across the way. How Houston will try to win. The Texans will have some decisions to make this week in terms of how they approach this game, as their strongest asset on offense plays right into the hands of their opponent. Denver's run defense has struggled all season and has been exploited in major ways on a few occasions. The issue for Houston is the fact that their running game has struggled most of the year, ranking 27th in rushing offense, DVOA, and 29th in yards per carry. While the run defense for the Broncos has been an issue, the teams they have faced during their winning streak have not been able to exploit that, as they all had their own running game issues. Last week, running back Damian Pierce returned after missing some time due to an injury. But Devin Singletary remained the primary running back as he played on over 80% of the offensive snaps for the third consecutive game. Quarterback C.J. Stroud appears to be running away with the Offensive Rookie of the Year award, and some people have even thrown his name around in the MVP race. He has 300-plus passing yards in four straight games and has two primary targets, Tank Dell and Nico Collins, who have been doing most of the damage. While the Texans rank only 16th in the NFL in PROE for the season, Stroud has attempted at least 36 passes in each of his last four games as the Texans appear to be ready to ride him to the end. While the Texans' passing game will be the primary focus once again, they have shown twice over the last four weeks, against the Bengals and Cardinals, that they can and will run the ball effectively if their opponent has trouble in that area. Cincinnati and Arizona rank 29th and 30th in rush defense DVOA, while Denver ranks 31st. Putting all this together, we can see how the Texans are likely to have a balanced approach to this game, as they will be pragmatic enough to take the easy yards on the ground to set up better down and distance situations for Stroud. While they will almost certainly need Stroud to have a strong performance if they want to win, they have shown they can adjust enough to make things easier on the rookie signal caller when necessary. Despite the temptation to simply let Stroud air it out, offensive coordinator Bobby Slowick will be wise enough not to play right into the teeth of the Broncos' defense. While the Broncos are on quite a hot streak right now, they have been dependent on their opponents making mistakes that let them be in the driver's seat or open the door for them to come back during that stretch. This should be quite the chess match and balancing act for the Texans' offense as they try to build a lead without giving the Broncos short fields. Likeliest Game Flow As has been the case for most Broncos games this season, turnovers are going to play a huge role in how this game plays out. The Broncos' offense is extremely conservative and does not make many explosive plays. They also rank poorly in red zone touchdown percentage, so many of their long drives are likely to end in field goals. This presents a situation where the Texans' offense, and their efficiency or lack thereof, is likely to drive the game flow. If Houston is able to both take care of the ball and put up some points early, they will force the Broncos to be more aggressive defensively and perhaps open things up for some big plays through the air for Houston. If, however, Houston struggles offensively early and this game stays low scoring throughout the first half, then we are likely in for a disappointing finish on the scoreboard. Five of the last eight Texans games have combined for point totals of 40 or less, with the three exceptions being games against the Bucks, Bengals, and Jaguars. 
The Bucks have an extreme pass-funnel defense that Stroud set records against. The Bengals had an elite passing game that turned the game into a shootout, and the Jaguars also have a potent offense. It feels like this game will need some surprising outcomes to reach the implied 47.5 total that the current over-under is set at. The Browns at the Rams kick off Sunday, December 3rd at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson We may all be exposed to the Joe Flacco experience in Week 13 if rookie quarterback Dorian Thompson-Robinson is not cleared from his Week 12 concussion. Both teams are likely to have a run-heavy approach to this game. This is a must-win game for both teams who are trying to keep pace in their respective playoff races. The Browns lead the NFL in man coverage rate, and the Rams' wide receivers have struggled against man coverage this season. Injury statuses for key players on both sides of the ball, especially for Cleveland, will impact how this game should be viewed. How Cleveland will try to win The Browns continue to fly through quarterbacks this season, as Deshaun Watson is already done for the season, and they may have their fourth starter of the year this week if veteran journeyman Joe Flacco is given the nod. Rookie quarterback Dorian Thompson-Robinson was concussed in last week's drubbing by the Broncos, and seems unlikely to be cleared for action. The Browns seem like they've seen enough from XFL star P.J. Walker, and Flacco is allegedly the next man up if DTR is unable to go. The Browns rank 31st in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, ahead of only Arthur Smith's ultra-conservative Atlanta offense. With Flacco under center, we should expect those numbers to hold or become even more run-heavy in Week 13. The Browns' defense ranks number one in the NFL in DVOA, and they will attempt to make this game about defense and ball control while running the ball at a very high rate and being conservative in the passing game. Flacco has always been an immobile statue as a quarterback, and at age 38, that will only be amplified. This means Cleveland will have to operate in a very traditional manner, and their passing game concepts will likely focus on screens and the short to intermediate areas. Star wide receiver Amari Cooper's status is also in doubt after sustaining a rib injury in Week 12. It seems likely that the running backs, tight end David Njoku, and slot receiver Elijah Moore will be very busy this week as Flacco is likely to have designed short throws and will check the ball down often against a zone-heavy Rams defense that is likely to flood their secondary with bodies and have zero fear of Flacco making plays with his legs. Flacco should also have some built-in chemistry with Moore after playing with him on the Jets last season. In Flacco's three starts to begin the 2022 season, Moore averaged seven targets per game. How Los Angeles will try to win The Rams have had some ups and downs this season, but enter Week 13 squarely in the NFC playoff race with a 5-6 record, a winnable game on the schedule, and three more games ahead of them against teams with losing records. After drubbing the Cardinals in Week 12, the Rams have a different opponent this week whose defense has been elite but is very banged up at this point. Also, this is a unique setup in the fact that they likely don't have a lot of fear about the opposing offense thanks to Cleveland's dicey quarterback situation.
Whereas last week, the Rams faced a very poor Cardinals defense and an exciting playmaking quarterback in Kyler Murray, you really can't draw up a bigger difference in opponent than the shift to the Browns for this week will be. The Browns listed 16 players on their initial injury report on Wednesday, compared to only five for the Rams. Among those on that list are star defensive players Miles Garrett and Denzel Ward. While Garrett's absence at practice was marked as a rest day, reports have come out that he is dealing with possible structural damage in his shoulder, but just choosing to gut it out. Meanwhile, Ward is a key cog for the Browns' defense that leads the league in man coverage rate. This is a tough matchup for the Rams' passing game, as both Pukanukua and Cooper Cup have been far less efficient against man coverage than zone this season. Perhaps if Ward is ruled out, that would open things up for them, but it seems very unlikely that this is a week where Los Angeles would suddenly have a surge of passing production. After throwing for 300-plus yards in three of the first four games, the Rams have not had more than 231 passing yards in any of their last seven games. The Browns' run defense has been far more vulnerable than their pass defense this year, ranking second in the league in yards per pass attempt allowed, while ranking 14th in yards allowed per carry. The Rams' running game found its rhythm last week thanks in large part to the return of Kyron Williams, and it would seem likely that they will once again rely heavily on that area of their offense as they look to control the ball and not give the Browns' offense short fields. They are likely to be comfortable with playing the field position game early and waiting on Flacco to make mistakes that give them short fields and easy points, so it seems unlikely that they will be forcing the issue downfield or taking aggressive shots early on. Likeliest Game Flow As we can largely expect both teams to have a heavy emphasis on their running games, and neither offense operates at a particularly fast pace, or is likely to be taking downfield shots early, we should expect a relatively slow-moving and low-scoring first half. Where things really get interesting starts when Cleveland has the ball, as Flacco is really the X-factor here. If he can play at a reasonable level and help the Browns' offense move the ball and score some points early, then this game has a chance for more offensive production than what we would initially expect. On the flip side, Flacco has taken a ton of sacks and thrown his share of pick sixes over the latter half of his career. And things could turn ugly quickly for the Browns if they fall behind, and or Flacco implodes early. While both of these scenarios, a surprising offensive battle or a dominant Rams win, are fun to think about, the reality is that this game is highly likely to be low-scoring and slow-moving. The Browns should have success running the ball and be able to hide Flacco, even if they fall behind by a score or two. Meanwhile, the Rams' offense has had most of their very good games against subpar defenses, while they will face an elite unit in this matchup. The implied team totals on this one seem like a pretty good indication of what we should expect, and both teams should enter this game fairly comfortable that if they can score 20 points and limit themselves to one turnover or less, they will emerge victorious. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The 49ers at the Eagles. Kickoff Sunday, December 3rd at 4.25 p.m. Eastern.
with an over-under of 47.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Game of the Week features a rematch of last year's NFC Championship game and will have a lot to live up to after last week's thrilling game between the Eagles and Bills. Both defenses have a clear path of least resistance, with the number indicating that the Philadelphia running game and 49ers passing game are the best spots this week. After a couple of quiet weeks, A.J. Brown could be primed for a breakout. The 49ers defense has 15 sacks in the three games since acquiring Chase Young. A loss by the Eagles would make next week's showdown with the Cowboys a game for the NFC East division lead. How San Francisco will try to win. The 49ers had a mid-season low where they lost three consecutive games to the Browns, Vikings, and Bengals. Other than that, they have won their other eight games, seven by double digits and five by three or more scores. In those eight wins, they have scored at least 27 points in every game and 30-plus in seven of eight. Another important factor to consider is that losing streak in the middle of their season came during the stretch of games where star wide receiver Debo Samuel and star offensive tackle Trent Williams were injured. Since both returned to the lineup, the 49ers have resumed their dominant ways and are scorching hot heading into Philadelphia this week. The 49ers run the ball at the highest rate in the NFL, but are just a little below the middle of the pack in pass rate over expectation. Said another way, a lot of their high rush rate has to do with the extreme game scripts that their high-scoring offense and very good defense have created for them this season. The 49ers passing game leads the league in DVOA and yards per pass attempt, as they have been wildly efficient when fully healthy. As we have explored in past weeks, this offense works similar to a basketball team, with Brock Purdy as the point guard and their four-star playmakers, Christian McCaffrey, Brandon Ayuk, Samuel, and George Kittle having the ball dispersed amongst them to make the plays. This week they face the Eagles, who have one of the league's top-run defenses that has slowed down many units this season. That fact is unlikely to completely deter the 49ers, however, as their running game concepts are the backbone to their offense and their scheme is unique in how hard it is to defend. Put simply, this is a tougher-than-usual matchup for the 49ers running game, but it is also a much more complex task than usual for the Eagles' run defense. The Eagles' secondary has had its issues, and the 49ers' highly efficient passing game will look to pick its spots and take advantage of this as well. Philadelphia mixes up their man and zone coverage looks, but they have been far worse when playing zone coverage this season than man. This weakness could be exploited this week by a 49ers team that is built to get the ball in the hands of its playmakers and then let them make things happen. Zone coverage, in many cases, makes those short completions a bit easier and then banks on the defenders making tackles. That's a dangerous little game to be playing with the likes of Debo, CMC, and Kittle. Philadelphia has had its share of troubles with outside receivers as well, and Ayuk leads the league in yards per route run, which is one of the more predictive receiving stats we have in terms of how good a receiver is really playing. All things considered, the 49ers offense will not stray too far from its normal approach in this game, 
but will certainly be aware of the offensive threat on the other side of the ball and take an aggressive approach early as they try to build a lead. Also, after seeing the Eagles' comeback victory over the Bills in Week 12, we should expect San Francisco to keep its foot on the gas even if the Niners are able to build an early lead. How Philadelphia Will Try to Win The Eagles survived another one in Week 12, finding a way to pull out an overtime victory over the Bills despite a lackluster offensive performance for much of the game. A 59-yard field goal in the rain forced overtime, and then a Bills offensive miscommunication that held them to a field goal allowed the Eagles to go on the game-winning drive, capped off by yet another Jalen Hurts touchdown run. This week, they host the 49ers for an NFC Championship game rematch and are one of the only teams with a 10-1 record or better to be a home underdog. As the market clearly thinks their run of narrow escapes and subpar strength of schedule is due for some correction. This week, the Eagles face a 49ers defense that has been making plays recently, and that is hard to find a weak spot in. San Francisco has 15 sacks in its three games since the Week 9 bye and has given up less than 70 rushing yards per game during that stretch. On paper, the 49ers' run defense appears to be their weakness, but their recent dominance in that area and their number 6 ranking in PFF run defense grades tells a slightly different story. Also, while the 49ers' defense may be easier to run on in theory, in reality, it is hard for teams to stay fully committed to a balanced attack while San Francisco is scoring 30-plus points in most weeks. The Eagles have the ace up their sleeve in Hurts being able to lock in short yard conversions and make plays, either by design or on scrambles on the ground. Hertz, along with the ultra-efficient DeAndre Swift, should be busy in this one once again as Philadelphia looks to control the line of scrimmage. The status of all-pro left tackle Lane Johnson should also be monitored. Johnson missed last week's game against the Bills and is a critical piece of Philly's league-best offensive line. Since the injury to tight end Dallas Goddard, Wide receiver Devonta Smith has had a bigger role and performed well, while Brown has come back down to earth since setting an NFL record for consecutive games with 125 or more receiving yards. Those two receivers have combined for a 55% target share in the two games that Goddard has missed, and should once again be the focal points this week with everyone else splitting up the scraps. The 49ers mix up their man and zone coverage looks, although they play single high safety looks at a much higher percentage than some of the Eagles' recent opponents. Smith has historically been more efficient against two high coverages, which the Eagles have seen a lot of over those two weeks, while Brown has been dominant against man coverage and single high looks. While Brown has been quiet by his standards recently, this could be a spot where the Eagles lean heavily on him, either by design or necessity. Likeliest Game Flow This game seems likely to have a similar flow to it as last week's Bills-Eagles game, in that both defenses are solid and both offenses will not want to dig themselves a hole too early by being overly aggressive. That said, the threats on both sides of the ball and knowing what their opponent is capable of should have both teams entering the game knowing they will need to score points to win, and that, for the most part, no lead will be totally safe. The 49ers are a wrecking ball that is extremely hard to keep up with once they build a lead, so an aggressive approach from them would make sense as they look for the knockout punch in a critical game for positioning and an opportunity to make a statement to the rest of the NFC. 
Meanwhile, the Eagles should enter this game knowing that Purdy's worst performances have come when he has been forced to play from behind, and that if they can have some early offensive success, they will have a chance to make the 49ers more predictable and force some mistakes from the young Purdy. This game has a wide range of outcomes, as a low-scoring slugfest would not be shocking, but both offenses can also put up 30 points with relative ease. In any regard, it should be a highly entertaining game that gives a good barometer of where things stand among the powers of the NFC.